within us. And we are, Lord, wholly and utterly dependent upon you for all things. We worship you. We say, as the Lord taught, uh, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Oh, Lord, I, we pray for that. We know one day all the earth will stand in utter awe of you. Your name is holy, absolutely unique, one-of-a-kind, glorious, great Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Your kingdom come, your will be done. I pray that in my life, Lord. I'm a sinful man being saved daily, saved but being saved, and ultimately will be saved. And that's the story of each one of us in here, Lord. We pray that we'll walk in the Spirit, being, being filled with Spirit, and serve the Lord as the servants, the doulos of the Lord Jesus. Oh, Lord, thank you so much. We ask, Lord, that you give us today our daily bread. Thank you that, that the sunshine and the rain and the, the bread that we eat, the things that we drink, clothing and covering, houses and homes, and all of this, Lord, all of it, you, you, you so wonderfully provide, and we live like kings by world standards. Our problem is we compare ourselves with others. Lord, forgive us of that. Thank you, Lord, for all of your goodness to us. Forgive us of our sins. It's a, it's a daily thing for us that know you, Lord. We're sinful. Paul said, O oh, wretched, wretched man that I am, who should deliver me from the bonds of this death? But thanks be unto the Lord who always gives us the victory. Forgive us, Lord. We pray that you'd search our hearts and cleanse us. We know that sin is a great block to hearing your word. Make our hearts tender and open that we might be your people, Lord, that we might bear in our body the gospel and the love of God. And we share knowing that faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. Thank you so much. Encourage those that may be downcast. Encourage, Lord, those with instruction and wisdom that are making difficult decisions. We pray for those in the throes of temptation that you might deliver. And I pray that you'd encourage all of us to grow and, and to do thy will daily, Father. Thank you so much. May you be much glorified in our, in our church. May Jesus be lifted up alone. And may the testimony of the Lord through all these ongoings with the land, the development, all that, may the Lord Jesus alone be praised. Thank you so, in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, take your Bible, look at Luke uh, 20. Uh, Rob read that section. And uh, we're <clears throat> after walking through Easter, and we did, we walked through a little bit of that. We said we're going to go back. It's like uh, when you see a movie and you see, you see sort of the ending of it, and then you go like, wow, that's it. And then it's a flashback. And we're going to continue to walk uh, through that last week in, in the doctor's gospel as uh, we look at a message that uh, I've entitled, it's not unique with me, but the murder of the owner's son and, uh, in, in, in the, the Luke's gospel chapter 20. Listen, I, I'm telling you, Jesus was the greatest storyteller of all time. You, you, do you know that? He's the greatest storyteller of all time. And if Emerson's right, the whole world loves a story. Don't you love a good story? Faith tells a story about Taylor, you know, where everyone stops, what's that, listen, you know. And they, they're just, 
Everyone loves a story, and if that's true, everyone especially loves a love story. And the greatest love story ever told is, is, is the Bible. I mean, from cover to cover. Now, we're fond of talking about different types of literature that are in the Bible. Um, you know, you've got the epistles, the letters, you've got, uh, you've got uh, um, the poetry sections, and then we love the Proverbs and the Psalms. But I'm here to say that by far the majority of the Bible is a narrative. A narrative is a story. God is, going, is telling his whole redemptive program through a story. And much of that story in Israel as it looks forward to Jesus, and then the fulfillment of that is a story. Oh, it's a wonderful thing. Jesus is the greatest storyteller. He was the master. And his stories, I remind you, were nev never longer than a page. I mean, it was the, he was the ultimate uh, submitter to the Reader's Digest. And you used to get the Reader's Digest? A great little thing. I don't, do they make it anymore? They, they still do? Yeah? I, out of Philadelphia, right? Wasn't that where it came Little, little excerpts there, this no bigger than that. And the Lord's stories would have fit into that beautifully. He tells stories about rocks and trees, sinners and saints, right? His stories include farmers. Farmer went out to sow, and he sowed various kinds of, or the seed was the same, and it hit various kinds of soil. He tells a story about businessmen, right? He tells about a shrewd manager, who uh, rewrote some contracts uh, for his own advantage, and he discovered when he got fired he had made some friends. Kind of a, kind of a different story with a twist, almost like uh, coming off the pages of the Wall Street Journal, if you will. He tells a story about fathers and sons, and how about the prodigal story, and the elder brother's reaction, and the father running to see us. He, he tells stories like that, and just to name a few, I say to you, he was the, the, the master of storyteller. Tells us something about the greatness of God, doesn't it? I remember uh, in early grades in school, it was one of my favorite times of the day in first and second grade when the teacher, a lot of times after lunch, say, it's story time. And you know that, Alice, you did that, I'm sure. And, and I remember our teacher, isn't it funny, Aesop's fables and reading some of these stories would captivate them. We'd all sit around, and it's such a teaching moment to tell the story. And our Lord was a master of it and tells us something about our God, that that would be the form of his teaching. He knew how powerful it was. He made us to learn so many lessons of life uh, through the storytelling. Well, there is a, one story that he told that was unique. I mean, it, is, it stands out head and shoulders above all the others. And one wrote, uh, as soon as we hear these words, we know that we are standing on the holy ground on the heart of the universe. I mean, it wasn't about them out there, uh, fathers and sons and rocks and birds and all that, but he's now pointing at the very core of his, his relationship with his father and the purpose he came, and it's like holy ground. It's like, like Exodus 3. We feel like, I better kick my shoes off because it's holy ground. There's a hush that settles in. And I remind you now, uh, he's in the last week of his life. He's in Jerusalem. The shadow of the cross almost hanging right over where he is at this point, and in the midst of this, he tells this parable, this, which is a story, and it's autobiographical. Now, some of you like to read biographies, don't you? 
How many of you like to do that? You like to read bio? And auto, do you like autobiographical, self-written things better than the, some, what someone else writes about a life? Do you like that better? I do too. Yeah, it's, uh, you kind of get the real deal, that kind of a thing like that. And, uh, and, and he, this is autobiographical. He, so he's going to tell a story. It's a parable. He's in the last days of his life. It's, it's like holy ground. Now, it's interesting because the theologians have spent a lot of time talking about this messianic uh, consciousness. Now, the Lord was born, he was raised, you know, by, uh, in Nazareth by Mary and Joseph. He was a carpenter's son, we know that, the text tells us. And, and uh, we, we see him at, at, uh, uh, in the temple, we see him then when he, or he's baptized, uh, when he's young, eight day, we see him then when he's twelve, and he's asking questions of uh, of the uh, the uh, theologians of that day, and of course they all leave. His mom and dad, and they leave, and uh, three days later, right, they find him. Didn't you know I had to be about my father's business or in the father's temple there? And we go like. Well, how was this awareness, you know, in his humility, he set aside the glory of his personhood, added to himself a human nature and a human body, no mixture on that, born, raised, what humility, and the awareness then, because he had a human nature and a human body, was he aware then, because he was divine also, completely unmixed, and his awareness, and it seems to be, he is aware of his mission. He knew the scriptures. He knew them completely. They were his book. And, uh, and so there was no surprise. And now we see it full-blown. He, here he is. I must needs go to Jerusalem, suffer. Now he's in Jerusalem. And uh, it was no surprise. It was like, oh, I didn't know I was going to be killed this day. He never, he knew all things. He was omniscient even in his humility, in the kenosis, where he became man. You see that? You can't, you can't get that any other way than when you read the gospel. And here he is within a few days of being executed. He's going to tell a story there in the temple. He's just cleansed the temple about uh, an intimate story that he's the beloved son and the father is the owner of the vineyard. And it has tremendous import for us as we're looking at the very heart of the universe and the redemptive plan of the ages. It's glorious. He is the beloved son and an amazing father who gave him into the hands of evil men. Well, he tells the story within days of the cross. It tells us about the plan, his suffering, the coming judgment. And Jesus does all this because he's sensing, again, the increased pressure of his, the opposition of the leaders, and it's fomented into a question when he cleanses the temple, second time if you're counting, right? He threw them out of the, uh, uh, out of the court of the Gentiles, and now he's preaching and teaching the gospel that was God's intended purpose for the temple, and they're seething. They've now lost their income. The religious leaders, right? They sold the animals at great markup, and uh, and they're real. They, they get rid of this guy. We got to x him out, and so they're gonna. But they're afraid of the people. You see, they're on the horns of a dilemma here. We got to get rid of this guy, but he's a populist. The people sort of like him. So how do we get rid of him and keep smiling and keep in favor with the people? Because we're afraid of the people. Bunch of cowards 
unbelieving leaders. And the Lord, uh, with no worry, he never worried, right on time, he's right on schedule, and he comes into, he cleanses the temple, and now they're going to question him because he's preaching and the people are all listening. I mean, they are, and they're, by what authority, by what authority do you do these things? That's their great question. Well, the text provides two insights into Jesus' own story. It's autobiographical, outlining God's plan of redemption and rescuing you and me from our sin. The sober story is from the greatest storyteller and has much to tell us. And incidentally, it's the last parable that Dr. Luke presents. This is the last parable that Jesus is going to tell that the doctor tells us in his wonderful gospel. Well, the first insight from Jesus is the parable reveals the storyteller and the beloved son are one and the same. Jesus, uh, again, cleansed the temple and, you, and is using it, as I said, for God's ordained purposes to teach the gospel to people. <clears throat> look, look, you can see that as you look at the, in verse 1, on a day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, Kerusa is proclaiming it, the gospel of God, the, the chief priests, the scribes, what authority, uh, what is the authority that you do these things? And who is it that gave you this authority? And we'll talk about that here in just a, a, mo a moment. Uh, the Lord is using the temple for the God-ordained purposes, not to make money through money changing and selling animals. We've talked about that in days gone by. And Jesus now begins to spar with the religious leaders for what he has done and his popularity among the people. They're jealous, the green eye monster, right? Envious of uh, his popularity and of his power and of his reputation. And so they ask, who died in, we, we would say in our day, who died and made you king? You ever hear that? Who died and made you king? Who, who made you the boss? We're the boss man. And incidentally, if we, you don't have our credentials. You didn't go through our schools, and we didn't ordain you and set you apart, and you're just a rabble rouser from that cow town of Nazareth. Who died and left you king? You ever hear that? I used to say that in our family with, with uh, my brothers sometimes. Uh, my older brother, if uh, he was trying to enforce his older age on me if we had work to do, and my father would give a, well, you do this, and, and he took what I thought was the easier one. You know, like, well, you, you get up there, and do, I'm doing down here this, well, who died and made you king? You know, right? Who gave you the authority? I'm bigger than you, and I'm older than you. Oh, well, that worked for a while, right? Until you, brothers, you know how brothers are, right? Some of you don't have any idea what I'm talking about, but that's, uh, we, we found that out. Who died and left you king? That's, that's what they're asking. Well, the Lord of glory refused to be tricked. How do you, like you like to spar intellectually with God? <laughs> you know, you ever have a debate team? I'll take him on my team and him on my team, and you can have the rest over there. You know, like, okay, now we're going we're gonna, to... We're gonna, you never see him at a loss. He goes like, and, and, and not only that, it's really an unfair advantage because the Lord knows exactly what they're thinking. So i like, how do you, you know, sort of like, well, we'll get him on this. 
No, I don't think so. He already knows it. And so <laughs> they're going to they're gonna spar with him here in front of the crowd. Where, who gave you this authority? And the Lord, like, no, not, no we're not going to answer that. Uh, you answer me this first. Who, who gave John? Let's go back to John, right? You tell me who gave John the authority, and then I'll answer you. And it shows their thinking, as Rob read the text. Uh, they, they, uh, they didn't believe that John the Baptist... That wild man out in the desert, out in the wilderness, who ate that strange diet and certainly didn't look like Botany 500 in his clothing and preaching away. I mean, you brood of vipers. I mean, he's preaching. Holy cow, man, oh man. No, he's not one of ours, no. But they feared because the people considered him to be a prophet. He was a prophet. He was the last of the Old Testament prophets. So they couldn't answer. That is, they refused to answer because uh, the people loved John. So the Lord, knowing that, uh, and, uh, uh, debate, and the debate or sparring with them goes like, well, then I'm not going to answer you either since you can't answer me that simple question. And that sort of ties them up again in knots and, uh, and so on. Well, in this setting then, Jesus tells this last parable to the people, and it's shockingly autobiographical, and it's about a vineyard that is let out to tenants uh, because the owner of the vineyard uh, went away for a long period of time. In verse 9, he began to tell this parable. A man planted a vineyard, very common setting. They could look up and see the vineyards in the hillside. Let it, he let it, that is, he rented it out to tenants who were responsible for it. And then he goes into another country for a long while. And when the time came, at the proper time, probably several years, they say with a vineyard, it takes a number, a number of years before the vineyard grows until the grapes are ripe and, and, and mature. Maybe it's years, but at the a right time, the owner sent uh, one of his servants uh, to collect uh, the rent. And we understand that to collect the rent from the land. We're, we have a farmer who has uh, rented uh, out our land and said he'd give us a tithe for it there at the property. I talked to him. I didn't tell you, Rob, but I talked to him last week. I had a great conversation, or two weeks ago. And he said he did sell the grain, and a check is coming. Well, we have not received yet. Uh, a, but he assures me it, it, it is coming. When you paid, in that day, you didn't give a check. You paid in kind. He would either give them some of the grapes, grape juice, or some of the wine, depending on uh, if it fermented, as payment of rent. So the servant at the right time sends him, and uh, he's treated terribly. Uh, instead, the rent collector is beat up. That's pretty rough. Some of you, everyone here at least pay rent at some time in your life? I bet you didn't beat up the guy when he cooked for the check or, and beat him up and sent him out of town and all that kind of rough. <laughs> You've probably been thrown out by your britches, you know, <laughs> up and out, uh, depending who owned it. And then it happened two or three times. Well, I sent another, probably bigger, stronger guy, come walking in there, pay up, you know, and they beat, and beat the guy up. They jumped on him, beat him up, beat him silly. That's the setting. You can, you can, I, with no imagination, the Lord's uh, story, oh, okay, yep. They sent each of uh, these away uh, without any money and beaten up and, uh, and killed. If uh, the two other gospel accounts include this and talk about even, uh, Luke uh, cuts it a little short, but even one was, was, uh, was really hurt badly. Well, God had sent uh, 
uh, in, in saying, well, who are these people? Uh, God the Father uh, has established, he is the owner of the vineyard. He has established uh, his people Israel. Israel is the vineyard. Isaiah 5, 1 to 8, clearly shows that Israel was the promised land, the Beulah land. God's promise. God had given, them, given that to it, to the nation of Israel, the land of milk and honey. And uh, it was a picture of uh, coming glory. A lot of times it's referred to that way, the, the Beulah land, and, um, and so on. The tenants, uh, those are, there's a little bit of disagreement among the uh, writers, but uh, they would be the religious leaders, the leaders of the country, the religious leaders. They were given the charge to take care of the vineyard for God. And, uh, and, uh, and, and, and many of them were despicably wicked, selfish, and uh, they, um, they didn't give God his uh, portion. They kept that back, and they abused the servants. The servants are readily the prophets that God would send. Uh, the, the, the gift of a prophet would be a, a one who would speak forth for God, would uh, call the nation to repentance and, and to obedience and to blessing. And uh, in, in the Old Testament history, and you read that through and you discover that cycle of sin. It was, if you read through Judges recently and or read the Bible through, it's, it's, uh, it's the victory and then defeat. Victory and then this terrible cycle of, of, of defeat and live in defeatville and, and slavery. Then they cry out to the Lord and God would raise up a judge. There would be prophets on the scene. And, and, and the Old Testament is filled with that. We, we see that with Isaiah. If we can trust some of the writings, Isaiah, that classical prophet, preached away, and uh, he was eventually put in a hollow of a tree and cut in half. The rejection of God's uh, servant calling his people, mostly the leaders, to be the men they ought to be and the women they ought to be and leading the nation and being the renters of it. Jeremiah the same, the weeping prophet, wrote Lamentations, the book of weeping, the funeral dirge. He's thrown into uh, a cistern to die. He's abused. He's rejected. How about Zechariah? He's killed in the vicinity of the temple. So God has sent through the years in this his, his vineyard, Israel, to his people. And they've been rejected and killed and scorned and, uh, and beaten. And here's Zechariah in the vicinity of, of the temple. He's, he's killed. And then how about John the Baptist? He is rejected. He is the last of the Old Testament prophets, the servant calling a people to prepare themselves for the coming of the Lord. And what? His head is severed from his body. So it's easy to see in this very autobiographical last story that Luke gives that Jesus in the, in the shadow of the cross is talking about the redemptive history through the years, and now it's come to this very moment, this very point, and uh, he is going to, uh, will identify himself as just the beloved son, uh, and it is. This, is. this is the way God is. I mean, he is ever so, for a long time, he's ever so patient. I mean, we would not be that patient. Uh, you ever do that? If I were God, what would you do? I'd been out smack them silly. I'd just wipe them out. When I read what God did in wiping out the world before Noah, I go like, yeah, that's what I would have done a whole lot earlier. Just wipe them out. If they want to just go that way, boom. You know, and, uh, and yet God is so long-suffering. And I'm so thankful for that. He's patient. We're not patient. We're really, we're, we're not. We get a little antsy going through the drive-thru, and if they goof up our order, 
John was telling us that at men's fraternity this week. You know, they goofed up his milkshake, and he, he's, you know, you got to wait an extra 10 minutes, hope they don't spit in it. That's a terrible thought, isn't it? You know, it's a, that's that extra flavor you get, you know? <laughs> oh, no, oh, no, I got to get it. Now, God is long-suffering. He's macrothumia, long-suffering. He's patient. He's a plan. I'm so grateful and thankful for that. When it looks like it's all fallen to pieces. And, that, and that's what it looked like there back in the world that once was with Noah. God has a plan. Aren't you glad of that? He's sovereign. And here, now here we're within the shadow of the cross. And they're going to kill the Lord of glory. Now we, we're going to say to them, he's going to be down, but he's not out. I mean, the plan of God, who, the glory to God to come up with such a plan, this redemptive plan of history. Down, but not out. Down, but in the downing, he defeats sin and death and the devil. And through that, he's coming back. I was reading that this week. Don't fear him who's able to kill the body. What's that? I mean, think about that. I mean, for a Christian, for our bodies to die, it's like, yippee, I'm going to heaven. I mean, that's the doorway to heaven. Jesus, don't fear him who kills the body. And the, the world reads and go like, what? Isn't that the end of the story? And Jesus is like, that's like the beginning. But fear him who's able to kill both the body and to throw the soul into hell forever. In other words, fear God. Oh, Lord, I need to hear that about every day. Because we live in the world thinking like, oh, death is the, if I die, that's the very worst thing that could happen. That's, that is pagan thinking. And here's Jesus in the shadow of his own cross. He's, he's talking about this incredible plan of the ages that he's going to be down, he's going to be dead, but guess what? That's where the victory is. Down but not out. It's an amazing story to me. The long-suffering of God, the patience of God through all his servants going to call the people back, of his people back, and uh, we, we, we go far afield, don't we? Far afield. Well, three, the owner's dilemma then in verse 13. <coughs> this is, uh, look, look at that in your text. Then the owner of the vineyard, God said, what shall I do? What shall I do? And then he answers his own question. I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to send my beloved son. It's uh, interesting to me that Jesus finds he cannot tell this story without saying that he is the beloved of, of the Father. Isn't that neat? I just, I love that so much. I mean, we, we've, we've already seen that at his baptism, right? Wouldn't that have been something to... Hear, hear a noise from heaven at the Lord. This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased in the, in the Spirit of God, like in the form of a dove descended on him. People heard a voice. Wow. Wow. And then on the Mount of Transfiguration, you know, Peter, he wants to put up some tents. Hey, let's have a camp out. This is great. You know, we got Elijah and Moses up here. And Moses did make it to the promised land. And uh, it was so great. And the Lord's talking about what? What's he talking about? You remember? What's the Lord talking to Moses and Elijah about on the Mount of Transfiguration? What is it? His departure. His departure. That's right. Actually, the great, his exodus. He's talking about his coming death and resurrection. 
What a conversation to eavesdrop on. We, remember we talked about that a few weeks ago. And Peter kind of wakes up and goes like, whoa, let's stay here. Let's, uh, let's uh, keep Moses and Elijah here. And, uh, and then all of a sudden they're gone. And the voice from heaven, the Father says, what? This is my beloved Son, in whom I well please. Listen to him. In other words, Elijah was a servant, had something to say. But he's a servant. Moses was a servant. You can't, they're not on par. It's the Lord of glory. It's the Lord Jesus. And the Lord is telling this wonderful thing. What will I do, the Father says? I will send my beloved Son. Beloved. And when hearing, when hearing this, I mean, when you, when you hear this, you and I know, after seeing the, the, the rough treatment of the uh, owner's servants, we hear this, and with bated breath, we want to almost yell, Don't do it! Don't do it! We know what's coming! To send the son, he's going to be, he'll be, that'll be it. They'll kill him. And we want to stop that story from going any further, right? Don't do that. And so the owner sends his beloved son. There, there it is. There's the holy ground. Jesus, in his own words, in this last parable in Luke's gospel, talking about himself. And God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever should believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. He was killed. Well, the climax of the story then, when the Son is killed, what then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? Jesus says that. What will he do to them? I mean, it stands in bold relief, if you will. And Jesus said, He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Well, the immediate response of the people is they yell, Meganoito! Meganoito! God forbid! All of a sudden the crowd just responds like a knee-jerk that somehow they're going to lose their privileged position as the people of God, as God's blessed, privileged, responsible people. What will the Father do? He's going to remove them and give it to someone else. God, no, may it never be. And the Lord's reaction here is so amazing that it becomes a second insight uh, to, uh, to this, because the Lord intimates that it will be given to the four corners of the earth and taken away from the nation itself, and that's the church. The second insight, then, is Jesus' serious rebuke encourages us that he would triumph in the end. This that looked like the worst of all tragedies becomes the uttermost triumph of the ages. In verses 17, 18, and 19. He may be down, but he's not out. His death was imminent, but three days later, victory would be his. And Jesus quotes Psalm 118. Now let's, let's back up to the text here. Well, he, he will come. He says, oh, what, uh, what then, verse uh, 15, what then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? And he answers, he will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. And when they heard this, the crowd, they said, surely not. Meganoito, God forbid, if you will, 
But look at Jesus' response and said, but he looked directly at them and he said, I mean, with other, with other solemnity and soberness, he looks directly at them and says, what then is this that is written? Psalm 118, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Jesus quotes this psalm, this very messianic psalm, and they knew that this was of their promised Messiah, and he says, this is me. He he was that stone, that cornerstone, that if it drops on anything, will crush it. And if you dropped a piece of pottery on that stone, it would destroy that pottery. Jesus is saying he is that cornerstone. The stone rejected became the cornerstone. He would suffer, but in the end he would provide victory over sin. Wonder of wonder. This, this again, is the plan of God's redemption. What a surprise ending. You ever watch a movie and... A movie is really nothing more than a story, and uh, we've, we've laughed about it before in our culture, that we always like, and they lived happily ever after, right? You know, and we've, we've, we've enjoyed thinking about some of the Asian cultures where they don't, they don't think that way necessarily, and they, end, and they end very terribly. The hero gets killed, and then it, then it drops down the end and gives the credits, I mean, in the West, we want to stand and boo, right? I want my money back, refund, you know, you rip me off. You can't take that because stamped into our very senses, we want to know that it's going to be happily ever after. You know, sometimes we, we do our kids an injustice. It's a fallen, broken world we live in. And, and in a sheltering, caring environment, needs to be, because reality hits soon enough, the, they have a hard time understanding in a broken world why bad stuff happens. And it's not always here and now where everything happens happily ever after. It isn't. Sometimes the righteous, you know, it's righteous is uh, zero, the wicked uh, too. And we have, we have suffered the consequences of that as a family and as a person, and, and you have too as well. And in this, Jesus is saying, in the, in the near future, there's going to be sorrow, death, and loss. The owner's son is going to be killed. But in that, that's not the end of the story. We go, yay, in the West, right? We like it happily ever after. He's going to be rejected but that rejected stone is going to be the cornerstone of everything. It's the, it's the rock that Daniel talked about that was made not by any human hands. It would be the foundation of the coming kingdom of the Lord Jesus forever and ever. The plan of redemption. Nothing would stop it, not even his death. Certainly not his death. And in fact, in the death would be the avenue to make it all happen. What a story is that! We go like, that is a surprise ending. I like that. Wow. Sometimes we'll say, I've read the end of the book, and we win, we win. And we go like, isn't that great? And here's the Lord again telling it right before on the temple mount in his father's house within the shadow of his own death. And it ought to encourage us because he is the victor of all. Well, 
Jesus would bring the final judgment. You don't miss this. The crush, he would crush those who would reject him in verse 18. He would crush. I mean, today, the, Jesus is not allowed to be prayed. Uh, a prayer prayed at the United Nations in the name of the Lord Jesus. What a travesty. You know, to have a place of peace, so-called, without the Prince of Peace, that's hopeless. That's hopeless. That's, that's totally, totally hopeless. Now, one day, that he is coming as Lord and judge and will crush all those who are outside of him. Crush. The rock will fall and crush. I, I like what you said, Mike, the other day. Sometimes when you share Christ with people, you, you said, you'll either bow the knee now and confess Jesus is Lord, or you will bow the knee. And that's at the judgment. And you will confess Jesus Christ is Lord. Either now do it willingly by the grace of God and God's work in your life, or you will do it. He will extract that from you at the judgment when the, the judgment comes and he crushes. Well, in B, this parable tells us about God's great patience as he bears with sinners against himself, the father, the, uh, the owner of the vineyard, away for a long time. Servants are abused, and he waits, and he waits, and he waits, I just wonder, is God waiting for you? Maybe you're here and you're not saved, and God is waiting and waiting. He's waiting. How long do you presume upon the grace of God and his common grace? And God invites you to come. Whosoever come calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You know, like the merciful, like the, the, the Pharisee, the, the Pharisee, Lord, uh, be merciful unto me, a sinner. I receive you as my Lord and as my God. God has waited all these years, and I don't know your story. I'd be saved for each one of you if I could. God saved me as a young boy. Well, what's your story? Have you come to him? It's more than knowing about him. It's the wonder of Jesus. You must receive him as your Lord and Savior, confessing your sin, and he will save you. He will save. And he waits. He bears with sinners, but there's an end to it. There's an end to his bearing with sinners, according to the Scriptures. Furthermore, it tells that God's program of redemption marches on to the end of the age. Nothing will stop it. You know, if you watch the basketball pro, uh, March Madness, and boy, there were some great games. That final game was, uh, was a great surprise. Michigan played so well, and then, uh, then uh, Louisville, boy, they just, I was amazed at that ending. That was, that was something and, uh, and, and so on. And you go like, well, how's it going to all end here? Um, and, and what they do a lot of times in basketball is they make the, uh, the corrections at the halftime. They do the same thing in football. And the coach that makes the best uh, uh, corrections usually, you know, in, in adjusting uh, can win, right? Uh, but with God, it's one plan. It's unstoppable. He never has to call an audible. There are no half times. Whoa, wait a minute. I didn't know this was going to happen. Let's do a chalk talk here and figure out what to do here. Never. The plan was established before creation, and it moves on right by. You and I live at this point in time, at this moment in history, right here. God has us in this blessed country of ours. Not perfect, plenty of evil and ill, but he's given us to be salt and light here. And it's no, uh, no uh, accident that we know each other, love each other. We're part of the same church family. and if I, That's all God's doing. You go like... Wow. And in our families, 
Have you said how many times so you go like, I think I was born in the wrong family? People tell me that. Pastor, don't tell anybody, but I think I, you know, look at my parents. I, I'm not nothing like them. Or, no, you're, no, you're where you need to be, you know. Rest in that. God, don't, don't, don't do that. And God's right on time. We see it in this greatest of all works, this work of redemption. It's amazing. Third, furthermore, it tells us that God's program of redemption marches on. Next, finally, Jesus' story reminds us that it is appointed unto men and women once to die, and after that, the judgment. Hebrews 9.27, there is a judgment coming. People need to fear facing the Lord. There's a loss of fear of God in our country, rightfully so. And people need to know there is a God in heaven in which all of us all of us will give an accounting of. It's appointed unto man once to die, and after that the judgment. Will you be crushed by the, his judgment, or will he have taken your judgment? That's the two choices. He, he did the judgment at the cross for all who gather there and receive him to be in Christos, or you will stand on your own according to your works, and you will be in trouble. man told me the other day, I'm keeping the Ten Commandments. I said, well, how are you doing with that? Well, pretty good. Not perfect, though, right? No. The law condemns. The law condemns us. We break in one place. We're a lawbreaker. Guilty. 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 The law is our schoolmaster. It's a, it shows us how much we fall short. And then the inner heart, the coveting. Oh, my. Oh, God. Well, God calls you to believe upon him today. Well, three things here. Jesus predicted his suffering. Within the shadow of the cross, he claimed to be Messiah, and he promised that death would not end all. I love that so much. Lessons for our life, and we'll be done. Number one, marvel as you hear the Lord Jesus tell us in story format God's great salvation plan from eternity. Plan. It, it ought to fill you with such amazement and marvel that you never quite get over it. You think, I say, well, I, I heard the old, old story. Well, ask the Lord to blow the dust off your Bible and off your memory of it and look at it like a diamond and the facets and the beauty of it, that this is the great work of God. Marvel at it. He knew exactly what was going to happen. It was all the decree and purposes of God. It would take place at the exact moment that God had ordained it and that it had been decided. Marvel. Number two, our world hates weakness and humility, doesn't it? I mean, uh, Nietzsche wrote of that in the turn of the 1900s, and it was carried out really to the nth degree with the Nazism. You know, they hated weakness. They hated to be mercy. They thought Jesus was weak and, and so on. And, uh, and, and, and it became very, very ugly. Might became right. That's what we're pretty well ending up with in a world that's rejected the biblical absolutes of what God is. It, it, what, what's it, be? it becomes very ugly. Francis Schaeffer wrote that. Whatever happened to the human race? And he talked about the downward stepping of rejecting God and his word. You know, first the unborn babies. Did you read that in the paper? I saw that. If unborn babies had guns to defend themselves, none of them would be aborted. Think about that. Holy cow, that's a thought. Babies, and then they do what? Infanticide, children they don't want, and then it's uh, uh, the, uh, all those that are a burden on society. I mean, they're handicapped, or this, let's get rid of them, or euthanize them. And then how about the old? Get them out. Well, the Nazis did all that. Remember that? And why could they do it? Because I can. 
oh, it becomes very ugly. Very ugly. Listen, Christianity has elevated the role of a woman. You know, she is to be protected and cared for. She, uh, she is... Uh, is, uh, is the glory of man. Man is the glory of God. And a man is to care for and protect his wife. She's not as equal if physically in strength. She, a lot of times, is a lot smarter and has a lot better. And that's a smart guy that marries a woman who's smarter than him. Now, that's pretty good. I did, I did a lot of that with faith, you know. And God helped me and smiled upon me. But she's to be protected in a world that is lost mercy and grace and love and ends up with might and power and in this kind of thing uh, it becomes very ugly and the abuse of children and women and the downward junk that you can't hardly believe people would be amazed bringing back from a hundred years ago and just the average bad stuff that happens they go like I can't believe it I can't believe it what are we living in it's just horrible and, and so on. Our world hates weakness and humility. Yet look at the Lord. Yet it was through such that Jesus triumphed over his enemies. The meek shall inherit the earth. And Jesus exhibited that. We are sheep. We're helpless, rather helpless creatures. And sheep are kind of stupid. You, some of you know that better than others. And we are sort of that way. We're sheep. And we need a shepherd for everything who was down but never out. Wow. Wow. Number three, wonder of wonders, it was through his suffering on the cross at what looked like total defeat. I mean, the disciples thought that. I, I said before, they should have had a tailgate party for three days outside the tomb. Like, all right, it's a countdown, right? Give me another sausage. <laughs> I'm waiting for Sunday morning. The Lord said three days, right? No way. They didn't believe it for the big event. They missed it, right? They thought it was total defeat, but victory was won. What a glorious plan. What a glorious God who could devise such a plan. The glory to God himself. Wow. Number four, if you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then know that God loves you. And in fact, you could not be more loved. You go like, I'm not lovable. Well, that may be so, you know. Well, God loves you. And that may be all you need to know. You might be feeling, I'm all alone, nobody cares, and God loves you. He loves you for, through his son. He loves you. He knows everything about you. All the warts and the wrinkles and everything. And in Jesus, you could not be more loved. So find great security in that. You too are beloved in the heart of our Heavenly Father. Rest in the everlasting arms of God. We sing those kind of songs because they're true. And number five and last, a warning, judgment is coming. Today is the day of salvation according to the scriptures. And the only question is, will you bow yourself before the Lord Jesus Christ in a, a prayer of faith and receive him as your Lord and as your God? You may presently still be under judgment because you've not done that. Death is coming. Hell is real. And you may not be ready. I urge you, call upon the name of Jesus. If I can help in that, call me, see me, tug my coat. I'd love to spend that time with you and settle that most important issue that you would know Jesus as your Savior. Oh, my. Oh, my. Oh, what a story. What a story. The whole world loves a story. What a story of stories.
the story of the murder of the owner's son. Wow. Wow. Let's stand and be dismissed, shall we? Father, thank you so much for this day, and thank you for these words of the Lord Jesus. And may we take them and hide them in our heart and apply them in our life, Lord, as we share the wonderful news of Jesus as broken but redeemed people to those that are still lost. Lord, help us to, to bridge to those through friendship and love and through care. And may people see the love of Jesus in us. Oh, we pray for that. Bless us as we go our way and make us a blessing to all that we should meet. And may we have the song of the Lord in our heart as we go. And we'll thank you till we can meet again. In Jesus' name, amen. Good day, everybody. God bless. What?